Welcome to More to Come, PW Comics World's podcast of comics and graphic novel news. I'm Heidi McDonald, the graphic novel review editor for Publishers Weekly and the editor-in-chief of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com. Uh, check us out on social media everywhere on PW Comics World. Uh, today we are talking to Bill Cartolopoulos, the editor, co-editor, I guess, of the Best American Comics series. Uh, which is now in its 10th year. So, uh, you know, they all laughed when they started, but no one is laughing now. Um, so, Bill, this is uh, the, the, the 2016 edition just came out with the co- – you're the series editor. Is that your proper title? Yeah, exactly. That's right. My title is series editor. Uh, I'm the – I guess the – well, technically the fourth human, but the third series editor. Right. Uh, the um, first two volumes in the series beginning in 2006 were – uh, with Anne Elizabeth Moore as the series editor. And then for six volumes, Matt Madden and Jessica Abel were co-series editors. They're cartoonists and also partners, and they worked on the uh, volumes together. And uh, the first one that I worked on that was published was the 2014 volume. So I've been in that role uh, since, I would say, probably 2013 because right. of the lead time. Yeah. Right. So... Um... So uh, what is the what does the series editor do? Because you do have a guest editor each year, which is usually a well, usually always a luminary in the world of comics or letters. So um, I guess uh, you know how does that process work? You know how how do you find the the guest editor each year? This year's volume is Raj Chast. Last year's Jonathan Lethem. Uh, year before that was Scott McCloud. So, so you know, others have been Linda Barry, I, I guess uh, Chris Ware, Neil Gaiman. So how do you do that? How do you find your guests? Well, in terms of finding the people, it's probably, uh, I mean, just based on the track record, it's not so hard to imagine a wish list of uh, fantastic people who one might theoretically want to work with on the series. Um, just to back it up a little bit, though, in terms of process, mm-hmm. um, the Best American Comics basically works on the same model as most of the other Best American titles in Houghton Mifflin Harcourt's series of annual Best American volumes, and that includes Best American Short Stories, which has been going since, I think, 1915, uh, Best American Essays, Best American... Uh, sports writing, et cetera. There's a whole um, uh, list of these titles that come out every year. And most of them function in the same way where there's a series editor who works on the series for multiple volumes, uh, collaborating with a special guest editor each year. Um, And uh, in my role as the series editor, what I do is I get, um, we have an open submission policy. Anyone can submit work to Best American Comics. All that matters is that it was published in some form, whether in print or digitally, uh, that it was published within the time frame that's applicable to each volume, and that it's by a North American artist, which mm. includes Canada and Mexico. So I receive countless submissions. I also um, keep my eyes open and reach out quite a bit to publishers and self-publishing artists and encourage them or ask them uh, to, to submit their work so that I try based on my familiarity with the field to make sure that we're getting all of the material that we should be getting. So in that, through various activities in that process, I end up accumulating many, many, many hundreds of of comics, which I then, uh, you know, read and consider. And I boil it down to a pool of about 120 or so uh, works that I then pass along as pre-selections to the guest editor. And that's pretty much the way all of the Best American titles work, Best American Short Stories, all the rest. And so the guest editor is someone who um, is someone uh, who 
has a kind of credible outside point of view uh, who comes in every year and brings something different to the table. Um, I think, you know, the the word best is um, almost designed, I think, to uh, potentially make people angry, <laughs> you know, right, to right. declare, you know, any group of uh, anything uh, the best of the year is, is just like um, inviting people to disagree with you in a way. And certainly there's always an element of subjectivity to any kind of honorific process, whether it's an award or a, a juried prize or a volume like this or a best of the year list or uh, whatever, you know, there's always an element of subjectivity. And I think what having the guests that are involved does is it actually makes a strength of that subjectivity uh -huh. by bringing in a different subjectivity every year. Uh -huh. um, and then in terms of who that person is, uh, you know, it's got to be someone who at the very least um, has the credibility uh, to um, make those determinations. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they are, a, a, you know, a capital E expert in comics. I think I've been very uh, lucky to deal in the three volumes that I've worked on to deal with guest editors who kind of run the full spectrum with Scott McCloud in 2014. You have someone who's kind of the ultimate comics insider. Right. I mean, Scott knows the field of comics in and out. He literally wrote the book on right. comics. Uh, <laughs> right. you know, Understanding he, comics, yeah. of course. Yeah, I mean, you know, and he kind of charged in with a real mission. That's not to say that he didn't uh, discover new work in the process. In fact, he did, and there were artists who he'd never seen before whose work I shared with him that ended up appearing in the final volume. Um, and then with Jonathan Lethem, uh, it's interesting because he's someone who's kind of outside of the field of comics but also has intersected with the field of comics in various ways he um you know he's well known among other things for i mean he's principally known as a novelist and he's well known among other things for including references to comic books in his novels one of his uh, uh earlier uh books was the fortress of solitude of which obviously takes its title from uh dc comic books and his work has included references to his you know lifelong fascination with comic books and he wrote uh, in Omega, the unknown series from Marvel. And beyond that, he's, uh, you know, sort of gone on record as a fan of a lot of contemporary comics artists ranging from, you know, Art Spiegelman to Gary Panzer and others. So he knew the field well enough that he was credible. And it, but it also became interesting to uh, bring someone like Jonathan in who um, wasn't, you know, day to day immersed with contemporary comics the way someone like Scott McCloud would be. Um, and then working with Roz this year, it was almost like she was kind of um, in between those two positions right. somehow. You can almost triangulate it in the sense that she's a cartoonist. She, her, that's her whole life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Since, uh, right, right. I think 1978, she's been, you know, when she was in her 20s, uh, she's been drawing uh, cartoons for The New Yorker. She's totally identified uh, as a cartoonist, much of her career has been with The New Yorker, although she's done books and other things outside of that. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's she's in this kind of unique position of being a New Yorker artist, a cartoonist, a full-time cartoonist, but not exactly in the comics field, uh, but constantly in her professional and creative life engaged with exactly the same cartoon uh, concerns that um, people working in comics are engaged with. And I should add, too, you know, not... Um, <clears throat> not at all unfamiliar with uh, the highlights of the landscape, let's yeah. say. And she came into it certainly already aware of, you know, Art Spiegelman and Alison Bechdel and Chris mm, Ware. Sure. And even some, even some younger artists she was already uh, familiar with and a fan of, you know, people like Gabrielle Bell and Julia Wirtz, who uh, are in the book this year. Interesting. 
Yeah, she was already familiar with some of that. Uh-huh. And she's also in this kind of unusual position where, um, you know, last year she did this um, very well-received, uh, highly acclaimed uh, graphic memoir. Um, I always get the title. Oh, uh, you know, can't, uh, can't we talk about something more pleasant? But, yeah. I mean, an incredible book. And it, it's um, like all of her work. It's kind of like a mixed format of you know, illustrated text and single images and pages of comics and collaged sequences. It's pretty much every uh, tool that she has used over her career combined into one book-length narrative. And because now we have a graphic novel field, she's a graphic novelist. So, right. Uh, right. so suddenly she's part of the comics club. And in fact, Jonathan had included um, an excerpt from that book in last year's Best American Comics. So right. She was in Best American Comics, and then she was guest editor. So anyway, um, you know, so we want people who uh, are going to bring uh, a unique and interesting point of view to the series. Um, of course, you know, there is also um, a kind of function of uh, having guest editors who um, are recognizable enough that a reader is going to be interested in knowing what their point of view on contemporary comics is. So that's also a consideration, right, too. Right, right. Because... Anytime you have something that comes out annually, year after year after year, I think there's probably going to be a concern that after a while it's going to be seen as maybe a known quantity uh, or something. And I think, um, you know, we do want people whose uh, work on the title is going to make people maybe sit up and take notice and be curious. Right. Uh, about how they would approach the field of contemporary comics today. Well, I have to say, I think that. Uh, I mean, I'm interested to hear your comments on Raj Chast because certainly, you know, you and I have been friends for so many years, as so many people on this podcast, they always say that. Um, and I would even say probably, you know, 10 years ago, uh, one would have thought of Raj Chast as being someone who was really in this whole other world, you know, not really involved in the the quote unquote I mean lowly I mean uh, comics obviously they're they're uh have been recognized quite a bit but but you know it, it's like they could, there seemed to be more of a divide between people at the New Yorker and um you know even you know people doing mini comics let's put it that way yeah whereas I'd say now uh you, you know I mean hearing that that she's you know actually I don't mean to be so uh, you know but but that she's 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 aware of all this, and you know, I mean, she's a smart lady, so uh, why wouldn't she be? But you, you know what I'm saying? It's like, like, sure, like, sure. like, it's more like, oh yes, she has read Gabrielle Bell, and you know, people do read Julia Wirtz and uh, you know, Keila Roberts, and all this stuff. So, I mean, it is kind of interesting how how that that has evolved, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. I mean, you know, one thing I'd say is, <clears throat> I know that. Um, uh, Roz has been to some comics festivals over the years. I mean, I worked for four years on the Brooklyn Comics and Graphics Festival, and I think in 2011, I want to say, maybe mm-hmm. 2010, we had her there as a guest. And I, uh, you know, I worked for several years at SPX, the Small Press Expo in Bethesda, and she's been there as a guest. So I think she's had these opportunities sure. to kind of dip into the comics world in part because. Um, I know from my point of view, from the inside, working on comics festivals and things like that, there are, I think at the good festivals or in the good uh, areas of comics, there is um, uh, an interest in kind of reaching out across those barriers. Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, I think also, though, 
there's something I, I would say Roz um, there's something about her work that in a way kind of maybe um, uniquely among her generation of New Yorker cartoonists although I wouldn't want to say that definitively um, uh, seems to kind of resonate with a more kind of underground or independent sensibility um, you know I've spoken yeah. to Roz several times and you know and she's you know, she's been interviewed countless times, too, and talks about the narrative of her career. And one thing she says over and over is that, you know, she did, she never expected that she would when she started out, that she would become so strongly identified with The New Yorker. Right. Uh, you know, she you know, I, I remember one time she said and I don't remember if she said it to me or if it was in an interview. You know, she thought, like, maybe she would sell some cartoons here and there to the village voice or something like that. And, um, you know, when you look at her work and what it is, it's. It, it it took a certain leap of imagination, I think, for um, I believe it was Lee Lawrence, who was the cartoon editor at The New Yorker at the time, to bring her into the fold and really get behind her work, um, because there is something kind of like neurotic and underground <laughs> about right, it. Right, on some, right, right, right. Um, and, you know, I mean, I can I can sort of imagine this like alternate um, history for Roz, where maybe if just things didn't click at The New Yorker, um you know, maybe she would have ended up in the Village Voice with, you know, Jules Pfeiffer and Mark Allen Stamity and, you know, maybe eventually down the road, a colleague of Ben Ketcher and Alison Bechdel, you know, and all sure. those people who worked more in the alternative weekly press uh, and things like that. So I, that that may be part of it, too. And Roz just loves cartooning in all its forms. I mean, she grew up uh, looking at a real mix of things ranging from uh, Mad to Charles Adams to National Lampoon. Um, I had the good uh, fortune to go up to her home a few times uh, to work on Best American Comics, and she showed me her studio, and she really is an aficionado of this stuff, and she just has a huge library of, of cartooning books. It's really, you know, it's not just a job. It's like right, a, right. a life-saving passion for her. So anyway, um, I think it's, you know, and then, of course, the there's the what I was talking about before, this uh, the graphic novel category has in a way, created opportunities for uh, cartoonists working in other fields like the New Yorker gag panel, for example, to kind of break out or expand from that. And certainly Roz's book did that last year. Right, exactly. And um, I mean, it is such a... Uh, I, I mean, obviously, we're going through this kind of melting pot of all of our culture due to the internet and and you know people i think did used to be a little bit more cut off from things that they their friends didn't own you know uh, because mm -hmm. uh they would have to physically see the objects and now of course you just click on tumblr and you know in an hour and you've seen more art than you know people saw in their entire lives uh, in some ways um you know this this year's volume i will say was uh i don't know uh, if it was uh the great blend of sensibilities or uh just that 2015 really was a kick-ass year for comics um but i i was really really impressed by this year's book and just in terms of just the range of the kind mm -hmm. of stories that were in there and um i mean i mentioned uh keila roberts earlier and you know she's someone who uh you know her work is so distinctive and and insightful uh you know and then 
you have Mark Bell, who's a complete fantasist, and Joe Sacco, uh, Linda Barry, John Porcelain. You know, I mean, it's just incredible. It really is amazing range. Oh, of thank work. you. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, um, and I, I, I guess, I, I mean, and I, and I, I'm looking also at the, at the. Uh, I'm looking at your website right now that has the notable comics on there also. And I mean, this list is mind boggling to me just with how many, uh, how many great things are on there. I mean, just actually the first one, the first comic on the list is uh, Janice by Lala Albert. Now I don't imagine too many people saw this cause it was in this very limited edition uh, from mm-hmm. breakdown press, but uh, mm-hmm. it's an amazing, amazing, amazing comic uh, that, is so multi-leveled and so fascinating, uh, and that's so. Anyway, A to Z here. So I, I don't. I mean, what have you? What have you seen? I mean, do you think there was something in the water? I mean, what was? Uh, you know, what was the? What made 2015 such a great year for comics? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, um, you know, there are a few things I could say about that. The one thing I would say, first of all, is that it really um, speaks to um, Roz's openness. Uh, to different kinds of comics, you know, I think for me, certainly one of the pleasures the past couple of years um, working on the series has been almost playing uh, <laughs> like, um, I'm not sure even how to describe it, like comics, like sommelier or something, sure, you know, sure. like <laughs> serving up all these uh, kind of uh, rare and exotic things sometimes to uh, a guest editor who hasn't seen them before and seeing what they react to. And, um, uh, you know, I think one of the great things about Roz's volume is that she was so open to so many different ways of making comics uh, so that, you know, there are some things that are very, you know, traditional and straightforward in their construction. There are other things that have, you know, collage elements, uh, you know, f- that incorporate photography. Uh, there are so many different kinds of stories, as you were saying. So it was, you know, it's every year it feels like almost like a collaboration between uh, almost like a three way collaboration between myself, the guest editor and the pool of material sure. that we happen to have in front of us. So there was a lot of uh, stylistic and narrative diversity this past year, although I think that's always true. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it just happened also to be the case that um, there was such a, a variety of work that Roz responded to. And I think that speaks to um, her open mindedness and the fact that she wasn't you know, in any way looking for work that was one particular type of thing. Right. Uh, so she could look at work that, you know, in some ways, um, uh, you know, is very traditionally drawn and work in other ways that's very um, unconventionally put together. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, it, it is. I mean, just flipping through the book, you see stuff that looks, you know, very raw and stuff that looks very composed. And uh, she she liked all of it equally. So mm-hmm. um, I don't you know, I don't I don't know um, if the past year was necessarily more uh, strong or diverse than the previous years that I've worked on the series. Um, but I do think that uh, it was kind of a nice confluence of, of guest editor and material where the things that really um, hit Roz the hardest tended to be. Uh, work that exists on a broad range mm-hmm. of uh, style, aesthetics, format, and narrative. Right, right. Well, I yeah, I, I I mean, it is just 
you know, lightning striking. I, but I also think that there's, um, I mean, I've really seen the comics short story or even novella, to use a horrible word, uh, kind of come into its own. And, uh, I mean, you have some, some things on there that were sort of from that, but, um, I just, I just see, you know, people like, uh, like Jillian Tamaki, for instance. I mean, I know, uh, her issue Frontier was, again, on the notable list, not in the, in the book, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who are doing these kind of, like, kind of short stories that are, uh, well, you know what, let me back up a minute, because I will say one of the most controversial things I ever wrote on the beat was about Best American Comics, and it was uh, years ago. It was the one that Chris Ware edited, and, uh, you know, for whatever reason, it was like every single story in the book was a, uh, was about, was an autobiographical comic, uh, and it was, a, you know, I mean, not that the work wasn't great, but it did seem to have this kind of tonal, um, similarity uh to put it to say it had the same spices okay <laughs> let's put it that way that, that was back when the graphic novel section was still cooling in the uh yes. in the library world or the or the bookstore world yeah. too and yeah i mean chris swears volume i think was 2007 and that was just just really a few years in i think to the current phase it that we're was in it was it was the first or second one it was very very early and um but you know at the same time i think that's a lot of what uh, was considered literary comics at the time. And I mean, you know, we've had endless conversations there, you know, about autobiographical comics. They were like a, you know, whipping boy or girl for a lot of people for a long time. And um, I don't know. I mean, I, I just see see cartoonists are really inspired today to do things. I mean, there are some autobiographical work in there, of course. Uh, but there's people who are also auto-inspired to do things that are uh, a little more outside their comfort zone, I guess. I mean, that's mm-hmm. become more accepted, I suppose. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. Um, I think I think there's just been a certain kind of branching out. Um, I think part of it is that uh, as, you know, these kind of almost, <laughs> you know, I mean, if, if you stick around long enough, you, you can almost observe like, micro generations of mm-hmm. people coming oh, into yes. the field you know where uh the work by people who who are starting to make noticeable comics today feels you know shades different than the people who came into the field two years ago or something like that and i think people are just coming into comics now with a very different context and sometimes very different influences um you know certainly if you look at the history i mean uh the kind of work that was uh, vital at the time that uh, the graphic novel was getting established as a category in bookstores and libraries was from, uh, you know, maybe a generation or so of artists who felt the need to very strongly differentiate what they did from uh, the kind of work that dominated at the comic book store, you know, sure. whether it was humor or, um, uh, you know, adventure or superheroes or whatever, and maybe in some ways to uh, distinguishing itself from the more uh, kind of down and dirty underground comics uh, that had preceded them. Um, So I I think now people getting into comics don't necessarily feel like they have something to prove vis-a-vis comics quite so much Mm -hmm. um, because it's already been accepted to an extent, you know, that it's a a legitimate uh, project, you know, to, to commit yourself to making comics that aren't for children, that aren't 
superheroes that aren't, you know, <laughs> within, right, right, within right. the kind of uh, identifiable uh, commercial genres. Um, so as a result, yeah, I think people are coming in. And, and I also think, yeah, I think you're right to an extent that maybe short fiction is coming back. Um, I think people... I think people are finding the world right now to just be very confusing and fiction can be a, <laughs> a great tool for kind of isolating uh, and and sort of um, meditating upon some of the um, elements that, that might otherwise, uh, you know, pass through us so quickly that we don't have a chance to slow down and take notice. Um, I think also there's... Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know for sure if I have a sense that there's more or less... Uh, short fiction being published now than uh, at some other given moment. I do think that there was a sense, you know, right after like the turn of the millennium that the graphic novel was like this teleological evolutionary phase. It was like the final form of comics. Right. And I mean, you know, I mean, that's also that's also bolstered by the for better or worse um, commercial reality that uh, a book length work can sell in a bookstore and a, a 40 page staple bound work cannot um, for the most part. And um, I think since then, though, people have maybe gotten over that a little bit or don't necessarily have that as an ambition or maybe just understand that the graphic novel has certain aesthetic properties and also certain commercial possibilities, but it can be part of a spectrum of work Um I mean, you know, Art Spiegelman is constantly talking about the problem of the graphic novel. And even though he's uh, often credited with popularizing the graphic novel, because in his mind, you know, that was a kind of that was an ambition at one point. But he feels that comics uh, have the power to really condense meaning down. And the truth is, if you're talking about the great comics of history, many of them are quite short, whether you're talking about Master Race by Bernard Krigstein or Here by yeah. Richard McGuire or most of Julie Doucet's body of work and so on. Um, so, you know, it's 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 interesting. I mean, I do think there's a mix, and certainly that mix is reflected in Best American Comics um, in the sense that we have self-contained short pieces and excerpts from longer uh, graphic novels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, one story that is in there is um, uh, Killing and Dying by Adrian Tomine and uh which I think is one of the greatest short comics uh, I've ever read. I mean, it's really a masterpiece. Um, he definitely has his uh, his chops down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, his evolution over the last few years has really been fascinating. I mean, and it was kind of interesting, too, because he sort of joined the graphic novel club for a minute after a career doing uh, short uh, fiction in comics form. He made Shortcomings, which was serialized. Uh, over a few issues of Optic Nerve and was collected as a book. But then uh, he kind of returned back to the short form. And um, and he's also just really been loosening up his style in a variety of ways and experimenting with it, experimenting with color uh, and different narrative modes, uh, sometimes, you know, doing humor stuff that we wouldn't maybe have previously thought of as being characteristic of his work. And Killing and Dying itself is just an incredible story. Uh, it's just, it's a real multi-layered story where there's, you know, a, a rich story happening in the foreground and a real tragic story kind of happening in the background and it doesn't really hit you over the head with it. Um, but it, it bears uh, repeated reading. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it is. It is truly, uh, one of my favorites. Um, 
Let me, uh, well now you are currently working on the 2017 edition, correct? So you have a whole big stack of submissions to go through, and you have a guest editor, but has the guest editor been announced yet? The guest editor has not been announced yet, but yeah, it's true. You know, there's a there's a time lag on these books because mm-hmm. of the time it takes to, you know, make selections and then, you know, contact the artists and get the rights to the work and do the contracts and get the files and edit, you know, organize the book and design it and all this stuff. Um, so, like, Best American Comics 2016 covers work that was published between uh, September 2014 and end of August 2015. So. Basically, it's like fall to fall, and then mm-hmm. the book comes out the following fall, um, which is maybe the easiest way to remember these complicated schedules that um, still confuse me sometimes. But uh, yeah, so I just actually just finished my reading period for Best American Comics 2017, which covers work published between September 2015 and August 2016. So yeah, I just finished reading, you know all of those comics, just mountains and mountains of comics, um, (laughs) many different forms and, uh, submitting my last batch of pre-selections to next year's guest editor who, uh, hasn't been named. So I can't, I mean, has been named internally, but hasn't been announced. Uh, but I can tell you that after working with Jonathan and working with Roz, um, I'm back to working with a, uh, someone who's more firmly identified with comics per se and has mm. a very prestigious position within the comics field. Well, uh, I I'm, I'm don't know how to twist your arm to get you to divulge this information, but um, uh, you know, we'll be looking forward to hearing it. Um, uh, do you... Uh, all right, I have to ask you this, this one question. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who um, was saying... Uh, uh, there is no, uh, I, I mean, even again, even looking at the long list, I mean, it is notably absent of anything that is distributed in the front of the book at Diamond. Uh, you know, Image, even Image, Dark Horse, uh, you know, certainly you could make an argument for, you know, things like Hellboy or certain other things. I mean, is that a stylistic choice? Of course, it is very subjective. But, um, you know, why? Uh, why the lack of mainstream comics in here? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, um, I mean, we've had some stuff from that zone in the book uh, before. I mean, in the 2014 volume, we had an excerpt from Saga. But I mean, obviously, that re- even having to reach back two years might just leave someone who's raising that question unsatisfied. Um, but, you know, we have had stuff like that occasionally. Uh, there are a few issues. I mean, first of all, um, one of the issues that we've had in the past is that we have occasionally had guest editors who have been interested in that work. And of course, you know, in the series editor role, um, I'm not, I'm, I'm happy to, um, serve the guest editor depending on what their interest is. And if someone's interested in that stuff, I'm happy to find stuff and bring it to them. Um, but we've had issues in the past, uh, even just trying to run work published by DC and Marvel where either, uh, they deny, I mean, this gets into the, less fun uh logistical side of putting together an anthology of previously published work but we've had difficulty sometimes even just flat out getting permission uh to include that work or you know sometimes the you know we have uh i don't know this is too much inside baseball but you know we just there's a budget for the book we have a set rate that we can pay Mm -hmm. uh to include the work and sometimes that hasn't worked 
for those companies. I mean, we're talking about branches of large multinational corporations. I mean, Marvel's a subsidiary of Disney. DC is a subsidiary of Time Warner and may be about to become a subsidiary of AT&T. AT&T right, yes, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, so I, that, I then, do yeah. know for, yeah, just to, just to, to back this up though, I will just, yeah. you know, to, cause I know this, I've, you know, there's a couple stories circulating out there, but it, but it is true that uh, at least one of the big two publishers has, uh, you know, rejected the use of one of their books as one of the best comics of the year. So, uh, or America's best comics. So, you know, that this is a fact that happens for whatever reason anyway. Sure. So, but anyway, continue. Yeah. But beyond that, I mean, there is, there is a broader field of, um, uh, titles that are oriented towards what you and I know as the direct market, that mm-hmm. sort of specialty, uh, you know, network of boutique comic book stores that have this very, set format of you know 36 ish page staple bound comics that tend to come out on wednesdays uh served by diamond which is a you know as we know a kind of near monopolistic Mm -hmm. uh distributor of this material um and you know of course there is stuff from outside of the big ip controlling companies like marvel and dc as you know as you were saying before there's dark horse there's image uh and a few other publishers that have uh robust lines that serve that market in some cases the work is creator owned and creator controlled and doesn't have the um, same kind of legal baggage attached to it and you know i do look at that stuff you know first of all the one thing i'd say is um we don't really get submissions from those publishers and anything that comes in as a submission i look at very carefully Uh Outside of the submissions, I do my due diligence, but I do exercise a certain amount of prerogative in terms of, you know, getting the stuff that I think that that I'm interested in and that I think the guest editor is actually going to be interested in. Uh, and I do due diligence. I mean, I look around at all kinds of comics, believe it or not. I um, actually happen to teach on Wednesdays uh, near Union Square, which is right by Forbidden Planet, which is one of the bigger, uh, you know, comic book stores in Manhattan. And I, more Wednesdays than not, I kind of stroll over there and look and see what the new releases are. And I do keep my eye on that stuff. Um, having said that, though, um, you know, it's it's not that often that I see something that makes me feel motivated to kind of extend myself and, you know, take it off the shelf and buy it and bring it home and read it. And then even when I do, I mean, it's not often that I feel then motivated to take that extra step to, you know, stick it in front of the guest editor's face and say that you have to read it. And I, and I think the reason is just that, um, you know, from my point of view, looking at the vast diversity of material that I see, and, and as you pointed out, Best American Comics 2016 has incredible rich diversity in it. Um, when you put it that, when you put a lot of those comics in that context, in my opinion, they tend to be a little bit more similar than they are different. And, um, you know, I think what we're looking for is work that really represents an artist's unique point of view, an artist's unique approach to making comics, an artist's unique form of expression. I mean, Best American Comics sits on the shelf next to Best American Short Stories, for example. And I don't think anyone questions, for example, that, uh, you know, the uh, Best American Short Stories is devoted to work that manifests, you know, the highest form of artistic literary achievement or that aspires to that anyway that represents the point of view of a unique individual author with a unique individual sensibility and uh you know i think that we expect that from uh uh, literary anthologies we expect that from 
museum exhibits. We expect that from uh, any other um, body or entity that is selecting the height of achievement within any particular field. Um, you know, I think we don't necessarily critique best American short stories, you know, for not dipping into, um, I don't know, you know, like serialized genre fiction or something mm, like that, right, you know, right. and, you know, and similarly, I think that it's, it's totally fair, um, to treat best American comics the same way and to really be focusing on comics that aspire to the highest level of individual artistic achievement that bring to the work the smallest number of preconceptions of what a comic can or should be. Right. Now, having said that, of course, there are always people, even within highly um, commercial contexts, who bring something special to that context, who maybe use uh, genre elements to subvert uh, expectations and things like that. And, you know, I mean, and like I said, we have occasionally um, included work that we really uh, feel stands out in those areas. Um, and, you know, I, I don't discount the possibility that we will again, um, but I don't, um, you know, I don't think we can necessarily expect that we're always going to find something that's so outstanding uh, in that way every single year that we work on the book. But in the meantime, there are you know, thousands of artists off in the wilderness trying to reinvent, you know, comics to express the unique thing that they have sure. to express. So that's, you know, I think the, the, the fields where there's the most freedom tend to be the most fertile fields in any form. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I would, I would not say that, um, I, I mean, I think it is a time of incredible achievement on a lot of levels in comics. Uh, you know, including uh, stuff that you pick up at uh, from from the the comics market. But but I, I you know I I uh, you know not everyone's going to want to read some of the stuff on here. You know, not everyone's going to want to read um, you know uh, Casanova Frankenstein. I have to say, you know, but I. I Pretty much everyone can read El Defo by C.C. Bell, and and you know if you're not moved and touched by that story, then you know don't read anything. <laughs> mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I I don't I mean I definitely uh, I wish that more. Oh well, you know what? This is always the the argument between elitism and and uh, you know populism. But I I wish that you know I do feel like. Um, once you once you once you go BAC, you never go back. You know, it's it's like there's just so much good stuff being done out there that doesn't negate. I I mean, I think it just throws. There's a lot of talented people who are working in mainstream comics, and I think when you see them cut cut loose, you see some very interesting work. And uh, I don't think that the commercial world of comics necessarily backs that up that kind of freedom. I suppose. So, um, you know, it's a choice. And uh, anyway, I'm glad I brought it up and that you addressed it. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, the other thing I would say, too, is I don't think um, I don't think it maps so neatly either against even elitist or populist in the sense that, I mean, I can't imagine anything more populist than an issue of powdered milk by Kyla Roberts, who you mentioned right. before. I mean, you're talking about someone who is making, you know, a, a, like a, you know, regularly like a a 12-page photocopied, hand-folded mini-comic. <laughs> and, right. you know, I mean, this is not... I mean, Aldefo, on the one hand, was published, uh, I think, by Abrams. Mm -hmm. And 
and won, you know, many awards and so on and so forth. And, you know, and, and Kyla Roberts is, you know, an artist and, uh, uh, you know, uh, also a, a parent and is making these very personal, uh, you know, handmade comics about her experience that are not seen by very many people. Um, and so I think actually we cover we cover both ends of that pretty right. well. I mean, you know, in Casanova Frankenstein's work is quite underground. You know, it's published by co-published by two very obscure uh, publishers, Profanity Hill and Teenage Dinosaur, you know, with kind of, you know, limited distribution, limited awareness. But this kind of raw personal account uh, that you can tell was was, uh, you know, drawn uh very freely in a, in probably in like a moleskin type uh, right, sketchbook right. and then, you know, uh, uh, printed as a, is a relatively cheap, uh, black and white comic book on newsprint. So, I mean, I don't, um, you know, I, I, I think, uh, if, if there's, um, a kind of elite level of comics making, if anything, uh, a lot of these artists are, are very far outside of it. Um, and to me, that's one of the great things about best American comics is that, you know, within within the kind of weird constraints of the project, meaning, you know, North American comics within a certain time period that's sort of, you know, kind of in a weird way or the collaborative choice of myself and the other uh, person I'm working with, the guest editor each year. It's a, it's a very odd set of constraints. Right. Um, but within within those constraints, uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt gives us um, absolute freedom to include the work uh, that we determine should be in the book in a given year. And so to me, that's, what's really amazing about it is that we have a lot of exposure to a broad range of material from large publishers down to small press over to, you know, uh, the big body of stuff online, uh, and further. And we have absolute freedom to determine which pieces, uh, ought to be included in the book every year. And then, you know, whether it's, um, something by a well-known artist uh, or, you know, a mini comic that was only printed maybe uh, in an edition of a few hundred copies, the work goes into the book. The book has a, I think, 25,000 copy print run. It goes into, you know, bookstores and libraries almost automatically all across the country. And um, it, it can really be, um, you know, I, ho I hope a nice honor honorific mm -hmm. for the artists who included, hopefully a kind of signal boost, too, for those who um, are working under the radar and, you know, allows their work to be seen by readers who maybe never would have encountered it before. Um, and um, I think when you put all the pieces together, what I hope it also does for readers is it creates um, a very broad vision of the many different possibilities right. of what comics can be uh, yeah. beyond what they might already be aware of. Well, I do, I do uh, highly recommend the series um, just for that reason, um, and you know, both as a really handsome collection and a uh, and a uh, as you say, just a you know something that to to broaden broaden you know, the scope of what you might might be uh, familiar with. Um, Bill, let me just uh, to check in with you. Uh, we're almost out of time, but but what else are you up to? I know you have a book you've been working on for a while, and uh, you teach. And, you know what else is going on in, in Bill K land? Uh, a few different things. Yeah, as you said, I'm, I've been uh, working for a little while on a book about comics, essentially a general history of North American comics uh, for Princeton University Press, uh, and that'll hopefully be finished sometime next year um, and, and with publication date forthcoming. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's a big project that I've been working on uh, for a little while now, but I have a little ways to go also. Um, 
And I do teach. I teach uh, right now a course on the graphic novel uh, a couple times a year at Parsons. I also co-teach a a class at SVA in their MFA visual narrative program where I teach comics history. Um, And I'm working right now on um, guests and programming for the MOCA Festival, which is happening again uh, the first week of April, 2017. All right. So, um, a lot, a lot going on. Well, you know, I, no pressure on the book. Um, but we're all looking forward to it. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, it's coming along. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Uh, well, it's a, it's a big task. Uh, and I think, uh, but I think you have a pretty good perspective on it. So I, I definitely look forward to, to seeing it when it comes out. So, uh, well, anyway, this is, this is great. Uh, Bill, as always, thank you so much, uh, for your time and, um, you know, there'll be more to come. All right. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Okay.